Angela Davis, one of the Black Panthers. She said, I'm no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I'm changing the things I cannot accept. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Call Her Madam podcast. Hello. Um, so we just wanted to say on behalf of Belle and I, we wanted to really thank you guys for all the positive feedback that we've received um, due to the podcast this past week. It's been so much more than we could have imagined, not only on social media, but the active listeners that we've had. Um, we're really excited about like kind of the future of this program and like kind of bringing more awareness into issues throughout the program. Um, with that said, though, we're super, super excited to be hosting episode two of this season. Um, and with us is Daniel Robles. So yeah, so today we're continuing the topic that we discussed last week, which is what it means to be an activist during the COVID-19 pandemic and how that has changed to a digital realm. So today, like Ale said, we have Daniel Robles here to discuss his research on political and social engagement in the 21st century, because we thought it would be like a good little background before we dive into what activism is right now. So he can give us kind of an educational background on that. Um, so it's funny, Ale and I both actually know Daniel personally in very different ways, but he did reach out to us um, once he saw our podcast to let us know that he would love to talk about this topic. So if anyone does want to talk about whatever they want to talk about, feel free to fill out the form in our bio and, you know, or reach out to us in DM overall. But yeah, Ale, how do you know Daniel? Yeah, so it's actually a really funny story. I mean, not really. I think yours is funnier, but it, mine's just like, it was very apolitical. Like, I want to fix the world, um, you know, before I was like really immersed into the entire political sphere. Um, Dan and I were both interning for our local congresswoman, um, Debbie Washington Schultz from Florida's 23rd district. Um, and with their kind of like, we interned during the summers, um, kind of like the same day. So Daniel, the t- I was going into my junior year I was going to my senior year of high school and then I was actually a student at the University of Central Florida. So like UCF. Um, and during this time, kind of like, you know, we became friends because we would enter on the same days. We'd go to the same programs. Like, you know, we both called out, but got called out by the Congresswoman for the same, re- like at the same time. So it's kind of like, kind of small, like small stuff that really is like now kind of, it's sin silly, but it's kind of like what made us friends really. And then I saw like you commented on his post on, um, it was him, like, sitting in, like, the Capitol, like, the Lincoln Monument or something, and I was, like, wait a second, I know him, too, um, and then I realized you guys both went to the same high school, so I was, like, oh, that's so funny. Yeah, so that's how I know Daniel. Um, I was a freshman, and he was a sophomore, and before, you know, Daniel was doing research at UCF, he was, in fact, a theater kid um, (laughs) for a moment, (laughs) maybe one play, but we both did Legally Blonde the musical. Um, great show. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. It's very funny. Um, but the movie's also good. <laughs> so if you've ever seen the show, it's there's like a song called Serious, and I think that's what it's called. And that's where Warner um, breaks up with Elle. And so they're at dinner. And so our theater teacher said, okay, well, let's make extras um, at a restaurant to make it look, you know, like they're at a restaurant. So Daniel and I were paired for the scene to pretend to be on a date and we would just have to sit there and pretend to be talking like no words coming out of our mouth during the song just like pretend to have conversation. Um, but it would be very long rehearsals where a theater teacher would just be like, no, no, this is awful. Stop. And then we would have to just sit there and listen to it all over again. So through that, we became friends because inevitably we you know, sat there talking for a very long time. 
But yeah, with that, welcome Daniel as our very first guest to the podcast ever. Um, feel free to introduce yourselves. You wanted to say like where you're from, your pronouns, what podcast you watch, anything like that. Hi, welcome. Hey y'all, thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored to be the first guest on Call Her Madam. It's an inaugural moment. I'm so happy to be here. Um, I do want a point of clarification on my short but brief musical career. I was actually a baseball player my entire high school career, quit my uh, senior season to join Legally Blonde the Musical, uh, had long curly hair, and I was called Corman Blue, um, and still am because of that exact moment. Uh, but again, Daniel Robles, University of Central Florida alumni, where I studied political science and economics, uh, did a lot of internships with congresswomen, uh, senators, did some nonprofit work, and also helped run a gubernatorial race where I ran the statewide uh, youth outreach program. Uh, eventually also became director of communications for student government at UCF. So my entire uh, experience in undergrad has been focused on not just studying, but being hands-on with youth engagement. Uh, and naturally that involves digital engagement and social media, uh, which really kind of helped drive my research to, to focus on uh, where our generation is online and how we're utilizing those platforms to really engage in politics. Thank you so much, Daniel, for joining us. Um, I think Legally Blonde was your political manifestation before you went <laughs> to college. So Daniel, what is your research and why did you decide to study this? Yeah, um, I think the big why behind my research around social media usage, specifically among young voters um, or non-voters, it, it was really this idea that I kept hearing this narrative that youth was not involved in politics or in social life. And I would live a very different reality where I would go on social media and I would see a lot of people uh, being engaged, a lot of uh, paying attention to news, tweeting about it. And I just, I beg the question is, are we not engaged? And if we are not engaged, like what are the metrics and measurements that people are using to, to make that assumption that we aren't engaged? And it kind of led to this entire discovery that uh, the, the way that we measured engagement among citizens in our country was just outdated and, and didn't necessarily include online engagement or just non-traditional forms of engagement. I think that's like really interesting because like when, you know, when you kind of like look at like levels of engagement, you know, especially now being Gen Z, like everybody is online. Like I, there's like, I believe like people in Gen Z are like likely to be on social media and like be on all like big one of the big seven platforms than like any other generation um and we're also like the most educated um kind of like Gen Z is in general so I know like within your entire thesis like part of it is like just making this distinction about political participation and civic engagement and you know a lot of people do use those two terms interchangeably but as like you kind of laid out the idea that they're really not so do you mind kind of just going into that and like differentiating differentiating yeah. them? Yeah, I, I think the important distinction to make there between political participation and civic engagement is where the action is being directed towards. Uh, political participation is more so actions directed towards your government, towards making change on the system, right? And this was the first and for a while, the only way we measured engagement among citizens. Uh, it was, do you vote? Do you work in campaigns? Do you donate to campaigns? It is very specific to acting on the system itself. 
And even as political participation started to expand in different ways that you could engage in between elections, it was always, are you engaging with the system itself? And if you're not engaging with the system itself, then you're not engaged, right? Uh, and then uh, a, a political scientist by the name of Putnam released this book called Bowling Alone. And it dubbed the term civic engagement, which totally expanded uh, the ways in which we understood that people were engaged in society. No longer was it just, am I engaged with the government itself? It's now, am I engaged in society? Do I have what he refers to as social capital? Am I talking to my neighbors? Am I in a book club? Am I bowling in a group, right? And it's where the, the, the term bowling alone means, is if you're bowling alone, you're not civically engaged, right? Either way, these are what we call pre-political actions that may not be political participation by the very definition and that you're acting on the system, but they have amazing implications for activating you, quote unquote, for future traditional forms of participation, right? And, and th that distinction is very important because again, it, when you're telling youth that they're not engaged uh, in politics, well, if you're not including those non-traditional pre-political forms of engagement, then yes, maybe we aren't as engaged as other generations, but you definitely have other forms of engagement that we are engaged on. And, and even when you make those expansions, uh, at the time when I released my research, there was very little done on the distinction between online and offline engagement. And that was kind of um, that hole that I was trying to address is that not only may we be engaged in non-traditional political forms, but if you look online, there is a lot of engagement, a lot of social involvement there. Um, so that was kind of the why and what and the, the, the bulk of the research was identifying where youth is and where they're engaging uh, with each other and with the political system itself. I think that's so true. I think it's really important um, to recognize that when they were making these distinctions of whether youth were engaged or not. This may have been at a time, possibly before social media or things like that. And if you really think about it, how do we expect youth to be engaged? Like a 15 year old, a 17 year old is not gonna necessarily have the financial means to donate to a campaign or make a meaningful contribution or even the time necessarily because especially BIPOC youth or people who financially are insecure cannot donate so much time without being compensated as well. And so how are they getting into the conversation? And I think that's where social media is such a positive aspect for young voters and youth in general to become more engaged. And that's why we're seeing such a surge in civic engagement among young people. So on that note, um, have you seen any differences since you've done your research to now or how things have changed during the pandemic? Yeah, I think I've seen a huge increase in engagement among uh, our generation, both online and offline. Uh, I think specifically online because of COVID-19 and the pandemic that social media has really been our only way of connecting with each other. Um, so it's been really cool. I mean, we just elected a president whose entire campaign was done digitally. Um, following CDC guidelines and not going door to door and doing the traditional canvassing uh, that campaigns have been just the bedrock of campaigns in the past. Um, so I think it's been really cool to see that. And I think it has tremendous, it's opened a lot of doors as to what the power of social media is um, 
both for activism and for campaigns. I think that's like kind of like something that you hinted at is like really important because a lot of my friends, like, you know, they are in the STEM field or in the business field. And, you know, sometimes like when the kind of like the Black Lives Matter movement kind of like re kind of in a way, quote unquote, restarted during the summer, you know, a lot of them kind of became like recently informed about topics that I would either be posting on my story or retweeting about. And kind of, it was because of what, like my own social media activism that kind of, they became more educated on the topic. Um, like for example, the war on drugs, right? Like what I learned in class and like majority of the books that I've read is like when war on drugs was made in order to suppress the votes of like black voters and hippie voters, right? So in that sense, like a lot of people didn't know that. And like kind of, even in my group chat, I was texted like, oh, did you guys know? Like, um, war on drugs was made to suppress voters. And I was like, yeah, we knew this. And everybody, all my friends were like, no, we didn't. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. And I was like, oh, only I, like, it wasn't like a point of like, it made me realize that taking my stop moving back. And, you know, it's like the best way to really help people and like get them more expansive on like certain issues is through like, especially now social media activism. And yes, there's like this entire sphere of like, you're only doing it for the clout of the social media and be like a social media activist only. Um, yeah, a cloudivist. <laughs> um which is also like really important like a lot of people just use it to build on their own reputation um rather than actually like with the idea of like spreading like goodwill to people like educating the public right social media really helps us meet people i think where they're at and we've seen that a lot over the summer to now i think like like you said ali like you learn things in your course and then you know when you see it you already know it you just reshare it but for some people like these infographics are how they learn things and it's also can be dangerous and we have to be conscious of that because like sometimes these infographics are used to spread false information um especially because it looks pretty and then people just reshare it the COVID-19 infographic that was that's literally recently been spreading out the anti-vaccine one that mm -hmm. was insane so I think it's really important that you know those who do know and are able to debunk those um, false claims should be doing that as well. But for me, it was interesting, I think, over the summer seeing the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement and how everyone was posting about it and how it was pretty inappropriate to not post anything about it or to just stay silent during the time. And, um, and then after that, like people were saying, oh, my social media has gone completely back to normal. And for me, I, I had a lot of friends like in the on the ground in Milwaukee or DC and they were posting videos of the protest bringing awareness to what um, MPD was doing NYPD was doing um, and so I was constantly seeing that still retweeting it and I remember I came home for the summer I was working on the Jen Perlman campaign so it was awkward we had the Debbie Wasserman Schultz interns but <laughs> I was working on that campaign and I ran into someone from my high school and she was like keep posting about everything that you're posting like um it's great I really support you but it's like it's interesting how for me that's all I see because that's all I follow and all I'm involved with and the people around me but other people from my high school or other friends who may be just studying other things in general they are back to normal quote-unquote back to normal because that's not what their algorithm shows it's not their interest but I think it's really interesting how like my one post can infiltrate what they normally see and bring more awareness to that in general. Yeah, I, I think you guys touched on a lot. Um, I think one thing that's really important to remember when you're on social media is the bubbles that social media really creates. Like the algorithms on social media are, 
and very much tailored to everything that you've done in the past. It's like you're at this buffet and everybody's at a buffet and all their buffets are different. They're personally customized to everything you like to eat based on anything you've ordered in the past, right? And, and that that's the thing about social media is it, it lets you kind of infiltrate other people's general bubbles, right? Um, it, and it really connects with this idea of civic engagement and pre-political participation, right? If you were offline and you were in a book club with somebody and you decided that you wanted to make a comment about a, an issue that you were passionate about, you've now affected somebody who didn't necessarily maybe care about that issue before, but because you, you were at a crossroad with them on something that was completely non-political, now all of a sudden you have their ears, your message gets spread, and you may activate them, quote unquote, to become a, a new spreader of your message. And, and with online engagement, it's even more so available to you. Like you said, you had friends who were having completely different algorithms that didn't necessarily um, see the same things you were seeing, but because you were that one person in their group, and maybe they get your uh, posts because they care about you as a person and there's different reasons why they actually follow you and, and have that what they call natural engagement with your posts. Now you've infiltrated their bubble and like you can spread your message there. Um, it, and, you know, it's really important not just to spread messages um, that are important to you, but also how you're spreading them. The platform, you have to recognize that the platform of social media is very quick instant gratification, right? Um, for example, Ale, when your friends didn't know about the war on drugs, and if you wanted to explain them on the war on drugs, you couldn't just spend five minutes lecturing them. If they're on social media and they see something about war on drugs, it has to be quick. It has to be very pretty. It has to be to the point. You have to take all this complicated information and kind of put it into a nice, pretty packaging. And that's something that's important is like social media is a way to infiltrate bubbles, but you also can't just infiltrate that bubble with a message that's only coming from your point of view. You have to understand where the people that you're trying to reach are at. I also think like something you said is really important. Like, you know, there's like so much information out there and like, you know, you have to do it pretty and you have to do it in a way that appeals to audiences. So they become more educated, but it's also the fact that because there's like so much disinformation or like information that, you know, from a one person point of view that they just kind of becomes generalized. Like people believe, you know, a lot of um, millennials, for example, and like Gen Z, not specifically, um, but Gen Z is actually the only generation that's the first generation really to when they see something on the media, they're likely to fact check it. And that's because we were kind of like also the first that grew up with this. We grew up with social media. We grew up with technology so easily accessible. But like if you go to like older generations, like, you know, they're more likely to read something either they get on Facebook, Twitter, whatever. And they're like, yep, that's it. That's what's happening. Right. So they don't really go ahead and like really look more forth into it. And kind of like that's kind of a it's social media is good for so many ways, but it's also like very negative in that sense. And also in the sense that social media can also be used to kind of like hurt, for example, protesters, like during the, the Black Lives Matter protests, like a lot of people on social media were saying like, do not post pictures of the protesters, do not post videos, do not try to like this instant gratification, like, oh, I was there, like, I'm, you know, I'm an ally. Yes, there's other ways to be an ally, I'm not necessarily posting a video of the march that could, you know, get possibly in like the hands of uh, police department and get like people in the march arrested like that did occur many times um so i think it's like also really important to kind of highlight these two narratives of like social media is good for so many ways especially politically but it also hinders like a lot of like 
kind of our, our like education and our awareness to certain issues to a one person perspective as well. Yeah, definitely. I, I think social media, like anything has its good and it's bad, you know, implications. One of the bad ones being the bubbles you create. Um, but I also think when you look at the benefits of online engagement mm -hmm. versus offline engagement, um, I, I think we can see social media as a tool, right? There is mm -hmm. research that shows that if you engage with something political online, you are more likely to engage offline, right? So uh, when there's that distinction, that connection, right? And you also, in the back of that, there's this argument of slacktivism online, mm -hmm. right? That, yes, the Paris bombing happened and you posted hashtag pray for Paris, but at the end of the day, what, what are you really doing there, right? And, and it's just that offline engagement seems to create more results than online mm -hmm. engagement because the results that online engagement creates are because it activates people offline, right? So like the Black Lives Matter resurgence that we've seen lately, you see it on your social media feed all the time. And a lot of these protests that you're seeing offline are, they're organized online. And they reach out to these people, um, many of which will be called monitorial citizens that are on the sidelines, watching what's going on. They're very involved in that they, they're, they're keeping up with topics but they don't know what to do. And when you're an activist online or you're a candidate in the online digital realm, you can utilize social media as a tool to activate these people in the offline realm to take that energy and to put it towards something very measurable and substantial. I think that's like really interesting because your thesis, um, your, the entirety of your work really focuses on like the political and social engagement with the 21st century. But I do have a question regarding kind of your sample. Um, because a lot of like the research does focus around business school students specifically at UCF. Mm -hmm. um, and I wasn't sure if you were trying to go more towards like the apolitical realm or it was possibly like an easier access to those students mm -hmm. uh, or, or like, you know, to have not as much. Because I feel like if you were to do political science students, it'd be just like this huge number of like, yeah. here we all are um, versus like political, maybe STEM students. Yes. Um, to answer your question that if I were to do it, with a bunch of political science students, I could expect a ridiculously much higher rate of political participation and civic engagement. And that's because other research has shown that if you're a political science student and you're asked if you're engaged in any way, you are almost five times more likely than a non-political science student oh, wow. to be engaged. So you almost have to control for that. So, <laughs> I mean, it, it, was, it was, in the end of the day, business students were almost like this great in-between ground because you expected them to be up to date with current events um, and maybe they'd be apolitical, but um, apolitical and not knowing versus apolitical and not caring, they can be differentiated. Yeah, and I think you also touched on in your research a little bit about the difference between passive and active disengagement. So could you explain that a little bit more and how you think politicians have been applying or looping in those people in general? Yeah, so I, there's an important distinction to make. So if you're actively disengaged, you're not only uninterested in the system, but you don't trust it, right? So you you could be very knowledgeable, but you don't trust the system, so you don't engage with it. Versus if you're passively, you're just simply not, you don't have opinions, you're not informed, you're, you don't care. Um, and I think what's interesting about actively disengaged people is that when they see something in the system or they see their Robin Hood of somebody who represents uh, and swears to fight the system, um, mm. they can become engaged because their trust in the system has been reinstated, right? And that can come in different ways, right? So for example, I think Donald Trump has tapped into some actively disengaged people that in the past 
may not have engaged in the system itself have been politically participating, but now they have somebody saying they're gonna come and drain the swamp. And that connects with those voters, connects with how they're feeling, right? But on the other end of that, you could also have a Democrat who comes in and connects with those, or those actively disengaged voters who speaks to issues that matter to them that they, and they speak to it in such a way that they can understand and that connects with them that now brings them into the political process because they no longer feel like it's empty promises or that it's corrupt in any way. So it, it's really understanding those disengaged voters as much as it is understanding those that are engaged. You want to know why people are engaged in the system and why they're not. I totally agree. And I think that we saw that a lot through politicians using memes um, during their campaigns. We saw Donald Trump and Michael Bloomberg going back and forth with their faces clapped on Star Wars videos. We saw Donald Trump post a video of um, Obama and friends watching basketball or something. Mm -hmm. And then Joe Biden stutter and they're like, really? Like, why are you backing him up? And then people look at that and people who are, like you said, maybe actively disengaged or passively, I'm not sure which one you can correct me, but they might look at that and be like, oh yeah, see, that's, that's funny. I can relate to him. I can relate to that. And then that makes them be like, eh, maybe I'll just vote for him. Like nothing else really matters. Politics doesn't really matter. So yeah. yeah. I think, I think that's less so about being actively or passively disengaged and more so just about um, breaking into those bubbles, um, mm -hmm. like we were saying before, right? So Mike Bloomberg, however you might have felt about his primary run, came from a business background, a lot of business analytics, marketing. Um, he knew how to utilize those social media insights to really connect with voters online where they were at. So he was running ads on meme pages that had no business in the <laughs> traditional sense of running political ads. But he knew exactly what the followers on those meme pages cared about. And he was able to, um, to curate his message to those people specifically in a way that connected with them, right? So that, that is what's really interesting is when you look at it from a business marketing perspective, they understand how to uh, identify where their customers are. And I think that as social media becomes more prevalent in the campaign world, in the way that um, politicians govern, that they'll understand where their constituents are in that digital space. Um, and I don't think constituents are gonna be necessarily quiet for them to ignore. It appeals to the audience, but it also humanizes the congressman or the congresswoman, right? Cause like you kind of see them as like this huge political party and like this intimidating figure, but like kind of even appealing, doing TikToks, for example, kind of like the, how the also campaigns doing like appealing to the general audience is like hey i'm human too i'm also on these platforms like look at me you know mm -hmm. and it's not only bringing attention to the issues but it's also kind of like creating the sense of like i maybe be a politician but i'm also kind of like you could be one too even like it kind of sets that this idea like anybody could be where i am really and i think that's also really powerful yeah i think i think social media is a great way to humanize politicians i i think i mean when you think about famous actors and actresses they're amazing with their social media. They'll do a random live and just talk to their fans, right? And I think that's something that more politicians are understanding that once you, um, you, you understand where your followers are and what you can use on social media to connect with them, that social media becomes a very powerful tool. I also think it's really cool because John Ossoff, I don't know if you guys saw, but he did a TikTok that was very much a play on the rare aesthetic trend going on there. 
And it was, it was awesome. Personally, when I saw it, I was super excited because it showed that not only are politicians understanding where their constituents are using social media, but that social media trends are help are deciding how politicians are going to connect with their constituents and their would be voters. In our own lives, we can do that too. Like kind of just like me involved in activism and politics. And then a friend who's involved in STEM, you know, shares one of my posts and that's it. Boom. You got that connection. And I think that's all of what like this is about and how that has helped um, activism and movements grow in general. Yeah, I mean, it, it's all about breaking the bubble, right? And it, it's all about um, kind of making your message reach the most amount of people. How are you marketing that message? And I think marketing in terms of political issues has always been a thing, right? You, you, when it comes to abortion, pro-life versus pro-choice, right? That, that, that isn't, we, we know there's so much more to the issue of abortion than pro-life and pro-choice. But the way that politicians have marketed issues is to get people in one of two umbrellas, right? They make their message reach out to a broad scale of people, right? So if you're pro-life, you're like, oh, life, I like life. Or you're like, choice, I like choice. You have to like create this narrative around an issue. And I think that social media provides insights and understanding of what messages, how you're going to frame policy issues that are going to connect with people, right? What's trending on social media is important to understand because that is an important insight to how you're going to frame your policy issue to meet people where they're at and where people are at can constantly change on social and social media but keeping a constant eye on where the trends are and where people are online will help you package the same issue into different narratives and to reach different people and I think it's really important you said that because it's like actually a perfect way to introduce like our next panel, um, members of our panels. Um, so these two speak next speakers are actually will be sharing their experience about being activists before COVID-19 pandemic and after the pandemic and how like their activism has really been shaped by the pandemic throughout. Um, so I think it's really important kind of like we're also seeing like that aspect, not only through like kind of like this data um, engagement side, but also through, like their side as well. That being said, Daniel, before, um, you know, we let you go, how do you think youth engagement will change for future generations or engagement in general when it comes to social media and campaigns? I think there's a lot of implications there, actually, because, you know, we just elected a president that ran his entire campaign digitally. We have seen the Black Lives Matter movement uh, go from online to offline. And we've seen how that has changed the narrative around the issues of race and equity in our country. Uh, I think that social media is going to be an important, an increasingly important tool for activism campaigns and government officials to utilize um, to make the changes that they want to see. And I think it's important to understand that social media allows everybody to have a voice. And I think a suggestion I would leave for your listeners is to understand and kind of do a, a reflection on what bubble you're in and try to understand how maybe to break that bubble and to get a full picture of the people um, that you're surrounded by and the full picture of issues and narratives that are online. Um, because understanding is the most important part before you can make change and to understand um, the complete 
picture gray areas and narratives around the issues you want to make change in, I think is going to be extremely important. So I think um, to answer your question, long story short, social media will be a great tool for activism in the future. And I think it's just a matter of understanding how to utilize that tool. Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us, Daniel, and having the honor of being our first guest ever. It was wonderful having you. Yeah. You did amazing for it to be first podcast presence ever. It was amazing. Thank you so much. I listened to enough that I, I felt like I've been <laughs> training for this moment my whole life. I can now say I was on a podcast. It almost feels like I was on a TED Talk. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, how, that's how amazing I feel right now. Thank you all so much for having me. Thank you for coming. And don't forget, call her madam. And I said, Mom, I am a rich man. You know, it's like I don't have to marry one. So,